unlike Facebook, where you get likes, which are dopamine hits, here you get a behavioral reward system of money or value. So that makes it incredibly powerful and fast adopted. So whatever we think the adoption curve is, it's probably going to be faster. I'm not sure whether that's 10 years away or five years away or 20 years away, but the way I look at it, I don't see a better store of collateral or collateral for a system on earth than Bitcoin. I think everybody's starting to understand this point now. You can build a financial system on top of this. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Last week, Bitcoin's price broke through the all-time high it hit in 2017 to come within $80 of the $20,000 mark. The move inevitably drew comparisons to those heady days three years ago when a frenzy developed around a wide swath of cryptocurrencies and tokens. But this rally feels very different from 2017. Back then, crypto people were fielding inquiries from distant relatives. Muggles, who'd previously thought their cousin's obsession with the technology was weird, now reached out to these strange crypto wizards in their midst, seeking advice on whether this or that token would make them rich. That retail-led rally, with its FOMO vibe, the fear of missing out, felt very unstable. It felt bubbly. In retrospect, the crash and the so-called crypto winter that followed seemed inevitable. This time, it doesn't feel as if the same kind of reckoning with gravity is looming, even though we are currently well off last week's highs. Now, the most cursed last words in economics are, this time is different. Yet I'm going to utter them here, not to proclaim that the price must go higher or that a brutal 2017-like correction isn't in the cards. As per the disclaimer you just heard, Coindesk does not offer investment advice. It is different for the simple fact that the current prevailing trope is not that of an annoying relative asking for advice on a pointless token, but of a big-shot hedge fund manager on CNBC proclaiming Bitcoin's qualities as digital gold. The recent names speaking favorably of Bitcoin read like a who's who of Wall Street. Fidelity, Citi, Guggenheim, Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, even BlackRock's CIO Larry Fink. Also, the context is different. COVID, climate change, a global economic recession, a debt crisis, an aging society, unending monetary expansion, zero interest rates, political instability, internet information wars, and the fact that central banks are now using digital currency technology to reinvent a world of money that the United States has ruled for 80 years. These capture the dysfunction and disruption of our times. Together they provide a backdrop, as well as a set of rather vague answers to the question, why Bitcoin? I confess to feel an unhealthy told-you-so sentiment. I'm no Austrian economist with a hardline belief in hard money, And I've long felt that scalability and accessibility challenges meant Bitcoin would struggle to compete with fiat currencies as a universal medium of exchange. But I have, for some time, bought into the idea that the world needs a digital instrument to fulfill the role that gold has occupied for centuries. There will always be demand for a digital store of value that's independent of the political framework, one that's invulnerable to the failings of human governance, regardless of whether it should be treated as legal tender. Bitcoin, the story goes, fits this moment. It's not necessarily a solution to humanity's problems, but a bellwether of them. It's an outlet for our angst, one whose expanding value, we hope, signals to those in power a need to reorient our global financial system toward the people it is supposed to support. Gold, with its physical scarcity and a culturally ingrained narrative of kings and conquest, played that role throughout civilization's millennia-long analog phase. But as we digitize pretty much everything, Bitcoin offers up a more up-to-date proof of scarcity, 
one built on math and a cultural narrative whose own set of compelling myths and memes have forged a community that breeds a self-fulfilling, ever-expanding network effect. So, are the Wall Street newcomers telling us that light bulbs are going off in the halls of power? Maybe. When BlackRock, whose assets under management exceed an unfathomable $7.5 trillion, starts paying attention to Bitcoin, it's hard to imagine others won't. Yet, for many who followed this stuff for a while, institutional buy-in seems bittersweet. The founding ethos of Bitcoin, and of crypto and blockchain technology generally, is as a people's tool. It's a means of bypassing barriers to entry and of expanding financial access worldwide so that people can transact together without depending on the say-so of centralized gatekeepers, be they governments or Wall Street banks. Some, especially those for whom the dollar-denominated price is a distraction and a misleading measure of success, see the arrival of BlackRock as not exactly good news. They fear that if institutions dominate the discourse around Bitcoin and blockchain, which could in turn drive regulators to bend rules to those powerful entities' needs, it sets back the crypto dream of humanistic money for all. So we have two competing narratives. One tells every fund manager to stock up on a digital gold hedge before the price goes to the moon on the back of a failure in the traditional political economy. The other calls for a back-to-roots focus on development, on the spirit of rebellion and disintermediation, and on making money available to all rather than merely as a protection for great wealth. Can the two stories coexist? Can we serve Wall Street and Venezuelan street vendors? I can't think of two better people to discuss this than our two guests today. We'll be talking to Raul Pal, CEO and founder of Real Vision and an influential global macro investor, and to Jill Carlson, a co-founder of the Open Money Initiative and a principal at venture firm Slow Ventures, and I would like to add a columnist at Coindesk. Before we talk to them, let's say hello to my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So we haven't spoken for a while because we had a bit of a break. And, That's um, true. We had a Thanksgiving in the middle of that, which was just... I wouldn't um, call it a break, but it was a hiatus. <laughs> it was a pause. Hiatus. A pause. <laughs> How was your Thanksgiving? It was, uh, it was different. We cooked a lot more than usual. So that was interesting. We felt we had the time to do that. And that was actually a big success, I have to say. We kind of enjoyed it. But yeah, restful, I would not say no, not restful. Lots of gratitude, very little rest. Lots of gratitude, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know that mine was all that restful either. But I did, it was quite positive. We didn't do anything but our immediate family. Um, well, actually, we did have a couple of people. We put them outside in a tent, kept them warm. And <laughs> right. somehow managed to like communicate in a way that made it seem real. I am an immigrant to this country, a nat- naturalized American, and one of the traditions I've always loved is Thanksgiving, and it is one of the great American holidays. I think because this process of giving thanks, I think, is really constructive. It helps you focus, and I really felt like, given the backdrop of how difficult 2020 has been, it was yep. really quite cathartic. This exercise of going, you know what? I have actually got a lot to be thankful for. So I know that that might sound sappy and sentimental, but it really actually hit me. I actually had a good Thanksgiving. It it felt good. And then, you know, reality sunk in as I looked at my own neighborhood and what's happening around it at the moment. Yeah, well, it was just after that. And of course, you know, the irony, of course, is that we all spent this time with our immediate families being grateful. And then, you know, two weeks later, here we are (laughs) locked down all over the country again. And, you know, with rates just skyrocketing. So there you have it. There's, There's a lesson in there somewhere or quite a story to weave. So before we get to our guests, in the interim, I ran out a column that obviously we the Bitcoin price reached this new high. We all got kind of excited about that. Coindesk, you know, these things matter. But it struck me that like, how, how do you think about the fact that this thing that we've all been interested in for some time tends to do well when the conversation is all about how bad everything is going around the world? And it just seemed to me that like one way to think about Bitcoin was a short, like a short position yeah. kind of against everything else, against the financial system. But I was trying to figure out how do I spin that positively? And I just got down this rabbit hole thinking about short selling, not so much as a way of betting on everything going to hell but as a way, hopefully, of signaling to the world that we've got to fix things, you know, that the price becomes a harbinger of the need for change. 
Yeah. You know, one thing I, I loved about that piece that you wrote was, I found it kind of funny, but this idea that you, if you really are long on Bitcoin, if you really are like a huddler, you know, then you are positioned to benefit primarily if this governance system collapses, you know, if the financial system goes into freefall, then, hey, you're doing great, you know, which certainly is not a position that I think most people would be comfortable taking, but really it is kind of what fundamentally underlies the theory of change that, you know, that represents Bitcoin to a lot of the population when you really drill down into it. So I do think that there is, it wasn't surprising, I think, that we did see some of this movement and activity during the period that we were in. There was a lot happening in the financial markets and the advent of, you know, American election, things happening out of China, COVID stuff. You know, there were a lot of reasons for market changes in all kinds of different markets over the course of the time period that we were on hiatus. But yeah, you know what? Bitcoin has done yet another of its, we're almost there, we're almost at 20. How long will we be there? Everyone's kind of holding their breath for us to come out of the tunnel. I, I'm really interested actually to hear from our guests to get their take on what all this activity means and, and doesn't mean. Yeah, me too. In fact, why don't we just do that? So let's first of all introduce Raul. I've been, I got to say, a fan of your work. I took special interest in your interest in Bitcoin when you were on with NLW on, on the breakdown and your observations around debt and the debt crisis hitting the world, I thought were really big. So if you don't mind, first of all, welcome. And tell us about your description of the global macro situation right now. Lay out, if you don't mind, what is the major issue facing us? And debt, I think, is a part of it. The situation here is we are in a recession, but this recession has got its foundation stones built a long time prior. And a lot of that is about the responses that we had to previous recessions, where we built debt on the balance sheets of both corporations and households and governments, and now into central banks. And that period has been an ongoing process, which is the, essentially a debt super cycle. So many of us in the macro world have been waiting for, okay, what's the next recession after 2008? And then particularly after 2012 in Europe, when the central banks really ramped up their balance sheets, we kind of all started to realize, okay, this is going to end somewhere and it probably isn't good. And these things tend to happen in the next recession. So macro guys have been on high alert for a next recession from about 2016 when the dollar got too strong. And then you know that proved to be a false alarm. And then by 2019, it looked pretty certain it was coming. And then COVID came and what we saw was an acceleration of everything that had gone before it. In fact, all of the money printing added together in the entire 20 years before this was dwarfed in the matter of weeks from this. Wow. So, okay, so that's one situation here. The other situation is, what is this recession all about? So the recession here was brutal for a quarter, down, call it 30% in GDP globally. I mean, unprecedented. Everyone says it's kind of returned back to normal, but year-on-year -year GDP growth is still negative 5%, which is the worst recession since the Great Depression. And that process of economic recovery not coming, and you guys were talking about you know, how you're seeing lockdowns again, it's the same in Europe. It means economic growth remains lower for longer, and businesses that have debts or high cost bases become insolvent. And that whole heady mix is only answered by more central bank printing and more fiscal stimulus. So it's a kind of very dangerous world monetarily. Jill, I'd love to get your reaction to some of that. You're someone, of course, who's currently working on open source money and payment solutions that are really anchored in human inclusion, which is the Open Money Initiative. Uh, but you're also somebody who understands the investment side because you were a sovereign debt trader at Goldman and you can think quite a bit. I know you've, you've talked quite a bit and written about the global macro arena, especially around Bitcoin. Um, so I'd love to get your reactions to what Raul just said. Also, I want to then have you comment on a column that you wrote recently and really just talking about how speculation is not a use case, right? So, so how do we think about Bitcoin and how do we think about all the different ways that people view Bitcoin and kind of conceive of Bitcoin and the, the really quite disparate orientation people have to this as a positive? How do we take that as a positive? But let's start with your responses to what Raul just said. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, such a privilege to be here and Raul, similarly, long-term fan of, of your work. So excited for this conversation on many levels. I agree with sort of what the macro environment looks like today and Raul, the, the prognosis that you just gave. I think that the big question to me 
is just when does the bill come due? And I think that that's the question that has been in the back of everyone's minds who's been watching the macro environment, you know, at least since 2008-2009 and through to today and really just accelerated obviously with all of the money printing that has in some ways been necessitated perhaps, you know, has has happened and is I think no doubt going to cause problems in the years to come of just when does the bill come due? When does all of the debt that's been accumulated get paid off? And, you know, Michael, to your point earlier, it's interesting to think that this anisoribilis in so many ways, you know, whether it's thinking about COVID or the economy or the mass scale unemployment has been in many ways a really great year for Bitcoin, at least in terms of price appreciation. You know, I think that's down to many things, but I think primarily, if I was to choose one narrative that it was down to, it's certainly these macro factors that have served as tailwinds to the Bitcoin price. And so, again, that's money printing, that's loss of faith in institutions as a whole. And you can see that whether it's on the economic side and on the monetary policy side, or even just more generally, you know, lack of faith in institutions like the WHO, the CDC in our own elected bodies, in the election process itself. And when that kind of faith breaks down, people start looking for these tail risk hedges, which Bitcoin do in large part to much of the work of many who've been in the industry for a decade now, has finally established itself as this sort of tail risk hedge, as this gold alternative. You reference Sheila, the short piece that I wrote for Coindesk, in which I posit that you know Bitcoin's price is a really poor proxy for its utility. And one of the things that I try to get at in that article is just the complexity of defining what Bitcoin's utility is, because I do think that there is utility in having a tail risk hedge or having an alternative to gold or an asset class that is serving that purpose. But if you were to survey sort of the larger Bitcoin community or the larger crypto ecosystem, I think that it's a fraction, perhaps not a small fraction, but a fraction no less of people that would say that that is the primary utility that cryptocurrency offers. You know, I think that there's many other narratives that that surrounds Bitcoin and crypto more broadly, whether that's this around censorship resistance and financial inclusion and a lot of the the areas that I've focused on and worked, whether that's around sort of Web3 and what might be coming with a more decentralized internet. It's not just about sort of the digital gold narrative, but that's definitely the one that has taken off in 2020. So I want to get into some of those alternative narratives beyond this digital gold thing. One of the key reasons we, we have you on here, Jill. But before we do, Raul, one of the ideas that you've positive and it's been rattling it around my head ever since you did. With regards to this debt outlook, as Jill put it, the moment in which the, the bill comes due, is a, an alternative way of thinking about what might be in some respects described as a debt jubilee, the idea that right around the world, every government is going to rack up all these high level debt to GDP ratios. And to avoid a, a kind of a currency war, that would be one way to try to deflate their or to rather devalue their way out of that problem. There has to be something in unison, and your suggestion is is some sort of coordinated monetization. I'd, I'd like you to explain what that is, but I'd also like to explain what that therefore means for Bitcoin and for crypto generally. Yeah, look, I mean, I follow very closely what the IMF and the BIS and the ECB have been saying about this, because these have basically been the thought leaders in the space. We've kind of figured out a long time ago that debt jubilees tend to be the outcomes. They have been over history. But trying to figure out how the mechanism of that works is really complex because the complicated global system of debts makes it really difficult indeed to figure out. But I thought there was a breakthrough that came from the IMF a few weeks ago when they started discussing a new Bretton Woods. Now, hidden in the language of that was basically an adoption of some sort of Facebook Libra idea, which is a multi-currency basket like an SDR where the US dollar is included in it. So then you stabilize currency flows and people stop competing. Also embedded in that language was something super interesting. They talked about the need for countries to clean up the kind of balance sheet mess that they've got themselves into and they need for further fiscal stimulus across the world. And it was kind of suggested that maybe if everybody did it at the same time, 
there were no adverse effects because you don't have a currency war. The problem is, is when you rotate stimulus from one to the other, it creates weaknesses in various currencies versus another. But if everybody, let's say, printed 50% of GDP all in one go, it's not a beggar than neighbor policy. So that's a way of basically devaluing your debt somewhat and also fiscally stimulating. So it's kind of a doubly good in a central banker terms. But what that does do, obviously, is devalues your currency against something, and it's generally hard assets. So it means that the value of Bitcoin and gold, which are two of the, you know, the most liquid and tradable hard assets in the world, will do extremely well because they tend to be the price anchor. Gold, for example, I follow against a basket of 27 currencies, and it does exactly what it says on the tin. It kind of over time goes up as central banks print more money, and it kind of follows kind of global central bank or global M2, something of that sort. It kind of follows that. And Bitcoin has this optionality on the future as well, so it tends to massively outperform. But I think this debt jubilee is not going to be, let's call all the debts off. It's too complicated. It'll be, let's deal with it all in one shot in a way that doesn't create an enormous shock for the world, potentially. And that could get us out of this and allow us all to, let's say, rebuild economies like the New Deal did back in the 1930s. So certainly there's consequences to all of this. And we know that there's a human cost to a lot of these different things. And so, Jill, that's where I find, you know, Bitcoin specifically really interesting. The forum just launched a Global Future Council on Cryptocurrencies, which you're a member of. And thank you for that. And we decided to pull together as one of the first pieces of output of this council a use case book. You know, kind of asked everyone on the council, pull together your favorite use case and write it up and whatnot. And, you know, I was laughing because one of our editors, who really doesn't know much about crypto or Bitcoin or blockchain, she was like, wow, you know, this is all talking about the same thing. Like all these different use cases are about the same thing. And it reminded me of kind of the Harry Potter mirror, like the room of requirement, right? You look in the mirror and you see whatever you really need, whatever you want it to be. And so I'm wondering, you know, why you take that, Jill, as a positive thing? Why do you see it as, as a benefit, as a boon almost, that there are all these different potential ways of viewing, let's stick with Bitcoin for the moment, of viewing this particular innovation and why you don't find that challenging? Oh, I certainly find it challenging as well. <laughs> I, the way that, that I tend to talk about it is as the parable of the blind men and the elephant. So you have all of these blind men and they're wandering through the desert and they come upon an elephant, but of course they don't know what it is. And they all start touching it, trying to figure out what it is. And of course, one grabs the trunk and another grabs the tail and another is touching you know, the side of it and another is touching the leg. And they all think that it's something completely different, right? They think it's a rope, it's a wall, it's a tree trunk. And that very much feels to me how the cryptocurrency ecosystem as a whole does, but you don't even need to go that far. You can even just look at and hone in on Bitcoin and, and what it offers. Bitcoin, as with any form of, of asset or money, is going to be something different to different people. And I actually don't think that that's going to change, at least in the short term. I think that there will continue to be a store of value crowd who thinks this is just really good for, for being digital gold and the kind of tail hedge uh, that we were talking about. And then there will be a camp that believes it's a medium of exchange. And then there will be a camp, which I think is where I fall, that believes that it can be both and kind of contain multitudes all at once. And I think that I tend to take an optimistic view of this because I, I think that we're at a stage as an industry where there is by necessity still kind of this Cambrian explosion of experimentation happening. And I think that that's actually a really wonderful and great thing because I think that that gives us that many more shots on goal to figure it out and get it right and build the products that will actually drive the utility of all of this. And I think that that's one of the reasons actually why Bitcoin as digital gold has taken off is that's one of the most simplistic use cases of it. All you really need for Bitcoin to serve as digital gold is a custody solution and, and a regulatory framework if you're an institution that's viable and that works for you. And it's taken us a while to get to number two. In many ways, it's also taken a while to get to number one, given the custody requirements that many institutions have. But by and large, that's actually relatively simple relative to what we look at if we're to talk about the infrastructure for Bitcoin to become a viable medium of exchange. 
So this is uh, there's lots we can do with this here because I think this, in some respects, brings up some of the tension that I was talking about in the opening monologue. In that you know there's a there's an ethos to Bitcoin that's all about don't have regulation and don't build this to the custodial needs of institutions. Build this to be something that anybody can use anywhere and not have to answer to anyone. So Raul, I'd like you to weigh in here because you know Jill was talking about the many different ways in which people within the crypto community think about this. You had a bit of an interesting interaction with crypto Twitter recently because you tweeted out this view that, look, ultimately, all Bitcoin entry points everywhere are going to get KYC, know your customer rules on them, uh, which, of course, is a demand of the banking system. But that's a good thing because it'll just allow institutions and others with money to be able to participate this in a legal way and value will come in that way. And you've got a lot of people pushing back on that and saying, hey, that's, that's just not part of what we do. Explain that to us. Did you take any of that on board? Do you stand by what you said? Yeah, I think Jill's dead right. All of the different narratives within this space are a feature, not a bug. And I think if we look at this in terms of network effects, network effects are super powerful when you have multiple narratives, not single narratives. So why did Facebook become so prevalent? It's because different people used it for different things. And it meant different things to different people. And I think that is the case with this space. However, the reality of life is that whatever we want it to be as individuals is irrelevant. It's a network that lives and breathes and does its thing. And so we have really very limited influence over that. But the important thing is here is that for many people to realize their ambitions, that this is a stateless money and that it's the libertarian future, for that to be adopted for people who live within the confines of a sovereign state, unfortunately, it will have to be regulated. And there's almost nothing we can do about that. So we can complain all we like, and we can try and develop the system to allow some ways of opting out of the systems we don't want to be part of. But for it to really happen, it will get regulated. The other thing is I said to people, and this is the bit where I was being contentious on purpose, is I said, listen, all of you are kind of screaming at me that it's all about Bitcoin and you don't want regulation, yet all of you want the price to go up and get rich. You want your stake in the future monetary system. And I'm saying, well, the actual fastest way to get rich in this space, if that's what you're after, is regulation, because that brings in the institutions. There is literally no way around it. If it's not regulated, they don't come in, because they can't. Okay, so Jill, your thoughts on that, if you don't mind. Is this something that undermines the spirit of an open monetary system? If it's all about getting everybody rich and abiding by regulation, aren't we just rebuilding the old financial system? So yeah, look, I think that the ethos that Raul is touching upon here of this very sort of realistic, grounded approach of, look, you know, we're just going to have to play ball with the regulators and we're just going to have to get our heads around having KYC if indeed we want the institutions to come. I think that that does run contrary to, to what is sort of at the heart of the origin, at least, of Bitcoin and what is at the heart of how many people use Bitcoin around the world. That said, I can appreciate and respect, again, the realism of that approach. But I think that the beauty of Bitcoin, though, is that you're not going to implement KYC and AML at the protocol level of Bitcoin, right? Like there is nothing sort of inherent to Bitcoin that can be regulated or enforced or controlled in that way when we talk about Bitcoin as the standalone product and, and as the asset. Now, there are certainly products that are being built around Bitcoin that are going to be regulated and that will enable users, candidly, such as myself, who do want to be compliant and, and do want to you know, have the security and peace of mind of having gone through KYC AML process. And we've had those for, for years now. Coinbase goes in that category. Pretty much any exchange that, that you've touched probably goes in that category of this highly regulated product. And I think that we will continue to see that as a trend realistically uh, within the space that more and more of these products that do want to be in regulatory compliance will arise. I think that, again, partly the beauty of Bitcoin, but this is also becoming an increasing issue as Bitcoin comes 
increasingly into the institutional spotlight. The problem arises when products that are serving a completely different customer base for whom KYC and AML policies don't work, when those products start to get regulated in such a way that that customer base can no longer access the utility in the product that they need. And so one example of this is local bitcoins. Local bitcoins has been around for seven or eight years now. It was one of the first Bitcoin exchanges or marketplaces to exist. It's akin to Craigslist, if you will. You know, it's just sort of an open bulletin board where anyone can post buys and sells and prices, and then local bitcoins facilitates the trade. And for a very, very long time now, local bitcoins has been used by people in emerging markets all over the world as they've been looking to either hedge against their probably inflating local currency or to evade capital controls to be able to send remittances in and out and so forth. And I've seen this in Venezuela and Argentina and elsewhere. And local bitcoins, again, was really this kind of gateway to to economic freedom for lots of people. But increasingly, as Bitcoin has become more institutionalized, local bitcoins has correspondingly come under scrutiny and has had to institute more and more KYC and AML standards and protocols within the product. And that's problematic when we're talking about people who don't have an identity or unbanked and are refugees and so forth. That's my fear. It's not so much a direct pushback of, you know, no, ideologically, we should not be talking about KYC or we should not be letting institutions in. I think institutions bring a lot of good to the space. But I think that, again, to me, the beauty of Bitcoin has always been that it's sort of an opt-in system to all of that. And I think that it's important that it remains such. So as a lawyer, I certainly am not averse to regulation as a general matter. On the other hand, on this show, in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about you know, KYC specifically, the Bank Secrecy Act, and different kinds of these institutionally oriented kinds of regulations that really have functioned as a form of redlining, where they really have resulted in wide swaths of the population not having access to certain kinds of financial services. And so is there a danger that there's going to be this kind of caste system created within Bitcoin where the real returns, the real money is going to be relegated to institutions that can afford to comply with, to some extent, regulation that isn't, is kind of being ported over into this space that isn't necessarily fully applicable? The smaller consumers of it are going to really be relegated to certain use cases. They're not going to get them those returns because they just can't afford to meet the kind of you know compliance and regulatory requirements that are going to let them see those kinds of returns and let them participate in certain kinds of exchanges, for example. Is that where we're headed? It's certainly something that I worry about, Sheila. There are a couple of different issues that we're touching upon. I think that there's the issue of just sort of replicating the old financial system in all of its kind of messiness and all of its sort of uh, the, the closed access or the unequal access that it provides globally. And then there's also just the issue of, you know, if you're speaking about the global poor, if they're using this, it's probably not in general as a long-term store of value. It's not as an investment. It might be as a short-term store of value. But there's just the, the separate issue, right, of not having the means to invest in the first place and to benefit from those gains. And so I think taken together, both of those things do give me pause around for whom crypto and in particular crypto price appreciation, whom that benefits over the long term. Well, and we certainly know, again, the origin story, the origin day is a Bitcoin, you know, certain kinds of people we empower as a society to take the kinds of risks that would lead them to put a lot of money or put their savings into Bitcoin. And, and we even see that now. I mean, when you when you see people who are talking about emptying out their 401k and throwing it into Bitcoin, there's a certain demographic that feels comfortable doing that. And certainly what I think we anecdotally observe is that a lot of the gains already are going to the same kinds of people who historically have been able to make arbitrage trades, right? And kind of take advantage of some of these opportunities as and when they arise. But I'm curious to kind of think a little bit about where we're going with this. So one of the reasons, you know, one of the arguments that Bitcoin has not exploded and isn't being used as, you know, at a retail level is that it's, it's slow, you know, and the main chain's expensive and things like this. But certainly we've got layer two solutions coming in. And I'm curious what you both think that's going to do for adoption. 
and what you kind of see and what your time frame is where you think we're going to see a little more of those non-store value use cases uh, start to come more into common view? From my perspective, it's very difficult to have a store of value that's as volatile as it is, even though it's skewed towards the upside. So I, I don't think those use cases come in, and I think they are going to come in, but I don't think they necessarily need to come in until we're further up Metcalfe's law. We start to flatten out the network effects, i.e. it's been more fully adopted. And I think that's definitely to come. And just to go back a little bit to the point that we were talking about a minute ago, I do think that you can't put the genie back into the bottle here. So even if they try and KYC Bitcoin for people in Venezuela, well, you can just have stable coins on Bitcoin. And there's a number of different ways around this. And the technology's there, and it's incredibly disruptive. So I don't think it's going to exclude anybody. But Bitcoin, maybe as that pristine collateral, is just going to be different because it's the closest source of, of the purity of, of what it is. But I think everything can still be built around it. And the layer two solutions too, I think it all comes. The technology is not going away. And I think to Jill's point, we can't really imagine where this is going to go. Because a world that, let's say there's 3 billion people using Bitcoin as some form of money, well, that's a very different world to where we are today when it's still in the, you know, maybe 100 million, maybe less. So I do think it changes a lot over time and it's going to morph as it becomes less volatile and more adopted. And I even think bringing institutions into the space will dampen down volatility over time, which is good and bad. Obviously, the returns get lower over time, but also its use case becomes much better when it doesn't go up and down, you know, 10% a day. So there's lots of changes to come and we're just in the very early phase. I just want to push back briefly, actually, on the notion that we can't put the genie back into the bottle, because if you look back at sort of the encryption wars of decades gone by, if you look back at what the discourse looked like around end-to-end -end encryption just in communication channels, you know, at one point, it looks like there was no way that, that all of the onslaught of regulation that was starting to happen around that was ever going to go away. And if you look at today, we can all use Signal, we can all download Signal. WhatsApp has end-to-end -end encrypted and, and they're you know, perhaps the most widely used messaging app in the world. And I think that it's impossible to say, and I, I won't pretend, Raul, to, to be majorly bullish on even what I'm saying right now. I, I do think that it's going to be a long, hard road if that is the road that we take to try to put that genie back in. But I don't think it's impossible. What I meant by the putting the genie back into the bottle is now you've invented cryptocurrencies and the technology, we can create different solutions endlessly. We saw this in, bizarrely enough, in synthetic drugs. So once synthetic drugs in terms of illegal drugs, stimulants and others were introduced, the regulators couldn't do anything about it because every time they tried to regulate them, they changed the chemical bond. And so they didn't know how, even how to regulate it. And basically, New Zealand just gave up in the end and said, you know, we're just going to accept all of it. And I think that's the same with this space is even if Bitcoin at core is KYC and AML to death, just people will build things around it. I just I don't think that the freedom element is going to go away. I, I, I do agree with that. Yeah, yeah. No, I do, I do think that we're on the same page on that. And I think that the question is just whether it necessitates sort of a cat and mouse game or whether the sort of freedom preserving products will be able to exist out in the open. And I think that will be jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Yeah, I think that's right. So I want to pick up on something that Raul, you said earlier, and it was really that we're at early days. And I find sometimes the conversation around Bitcoin not being a store of value from traditional economists to be a little naive in this regard. And it's ridiculous that somebody as undereducated as me can claim that. But I feel like they use the present and the state of existing stores of value and what they think that should be to be the benchmark. When in fact, I think what we're talking about is the fact that Bitcoin is entering into an early phase of the process of becoming a store of value. None of us know how volatile gold was 7,000 years ago when you know people will say, what, I'm going to use this as a, as a currency? What are you talking about? I'd prefer to use you know, wheat or, or whatever. And so that discovery process, I think, is what's interesting. But it implies then that the environment you're talking about, which I think is a very interesting one, where Bitcoin maybe does become universalized, it stabilizes in price, and then this powerful quality that it could possibly be as a source of underlying collateral with smart contracts and all sorts of stuff being built on top of it becomes the foundation for all the stuff that Jill's talking about, about how do we actually 
enable participation in a different financial system. The, the problem is that sounds like it might take a long time. What sort of time frame are you talking about here in terms well, of- you know, The problem is, is with Metcalfe's law, which is basically what this is, that's the main attribute Bitcoin has, because it, it's incredible. Unlike Facebook, where you get likes, which are dopamine hits, here you get a behavioral reward system of money or value. So that makes it incredibly powerful and fast adopted. So whatever we think the adoption curve is, it's probably going to be faster. So I'm not sure whether that's 10 years away or five years away or 20 years away. But all I do know is the way I look at it is I don't see a better store of collateral or collateral for a system on earth than Bitcoin. It's you know limited supply, it's knowable supply, and the fact that you can trace it back to its source at any one point, which is the biggest problem in the financial markets, makes it enormously valuable. I think everybody's starting to understand this point now that you can build a financial system on top of this. Now, the problem is, is, as Jill said, is actually we're humans and I think we're going to build the same financial system all over again, which is we're going to add leverage to it. Because the moment you have a store of collateral, it means I can lend it to you for money and then you can use it and you can generate leverage. So I, I'm concerned that we're humans and we just repeat the same old cycle endlessly. But there is a hope. There is a hope that there's something different here. You know, I think that that's the default that we should assume. I think we should assume that we are just going to recreate our current system unless there is strong motivation to do better and do differently. And the question for me is, where is that pressure coming from? Is it coming from you know, libertarians? Is it coming from crypto anarchists? Is it coming from the unbanked? Where is the pressure? Where is that demand signal to really build something that does not just replicate our current system. And this is, I think, getting to Michael's point from earlier in the episode, which is how do you balance the needs of institutions and the needs of the average person, the average individual, particularly the average individual and in, let's say a hyperinflationary economy that could really be using this particular innovation in a way that there hasn't been anything like that before. So Jill, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. And maybe you can also just tell us a bit about what you've learned and observed through all the time that you've spent thinking about and working in Venezuela. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, I'll start with your first question, then get into Venezuela specifically. But I think that there's this temptation, and I certainly succumb to this frequently, to talk about the existing financial system, the legacy financial system, as though it's this stable and stagnant entity. And it's not. It's something that's constantly changing. And it's something that is being quite rapidly actually transformed, even despite all of the sort of roadblocks that are endemic to just being a, a regulated financial institution. And one of the most important ways in which it's being transformed is the eradication of cash and a move towards digital cash, digital forms of cash, you know, whether that's through card networks, whether that's through bank transfers, and so on. We now have a proliferation of apps on our phone that allow us to do savings and to do payments all digitally and never having to touch actual physical money. That is one regard, actually, in which I would be a huge fan of Bitcoin actually replicating the old system. That's one of these narratives, I think, that we haven't quite yet seen fully come to fruition, although there are glimmers of it, of Bitcoin acting as digital cash, which, of course, if you go back to the original white paper, that's sort of what Satoshi laid it out as, not just digital gold, but digital cash, I think was his phrasing. And so if you think about what cash does for people, it provides a huge service to the unbanked, to those who don't have an identity, and also to those who who want to behave in a manner that isn't traced or tracked by the government. And we can debate as to whether that's good, bad, or ugly, or, or should be allowed or should not be allowed, or you know, if, if we're fans of enforcement or not. But the reality is, is that today, cash allows people to evade a lot of enforcement, and crypto has the same promise. Now, you know, if, if we look at a case of Venezuela specifically, I think that it provides a nice counterpoint to what a lot of people think of when they think about evading what the government does or does not want you to do. You know, generally in the United States, we tend to think of the Silk Road, of people uh, dealing in drugs. You know, we tend to think of all kinds of sort of bad actors, nefarious activity. You know, in Venezuela, it's, it's a very different landscape. You know, certainly some of the activity that people are engaging in 
uh, when it comes to their money is uh, technically illegal. But when we're talking about an, an authoritarian state uh, that has dramatically mismanaged its currency, that has experienced over a million percent inflation in the last year, and has led to a massive uh, refugee crisis, actually, of people fleeing the economic situation specifically, you know, over a tenth of the country has left because of the economic and financial mismanagement of the government. You know, those people, I think, deserve an escape hatch. And one of the escape hatches available to them has been uh, historically and, and still is today, the US dollar, but in cash form, because most people there cannot open US bank accounts, remember, and so it, it comes in the form of physical cash being smuggled in and out. And much more accessibly, it now comes in the form of Bitcoin as well. And so that all, I think, goes to, to speak to this notion that it's, it's maybe not always a universally bad thing to be replicating the old system if there are ways in which the old system actually really worked. And it's just a matter of the fact that we're now moving away from that system. There's so much we could do to just dive into the Venezuela <laughs> example. I don't know, JP Koenig had a really interesting piece a couple of days ago about uh, the way that stable coins and, and Zelle are being incorporated there. But I think we have to save that for another show. What I just want to do before we close here is a couple of things I just want to pick up on, and that's to you, Raul. We've been talking a little bit about you know, the different constituents here, institutions versus, say, the unbanked in a place like Venezuela. But there's another way to break this thing up in terms of different population, different needs, and that is on a demographic basis. I think I heard you on a podcast talk about how different the investment outlook is for millennials and you know Gen Zs facing you know thirty to forty years out of zero interest rates, as opposed to say a boomer who's sitting on decades of rising house prices and rising four hundred one k values and is about to sort of cash all out into into retirement, and how therefore their mindset and how they think about where value lies and what money is and what Bitcoin is versus the dollar is going to be very different. What does that tell you? How how does that how does that play out in terms of the dynamics here, the political dynamics as much as anything else? So the, the millennials have a big problem on their hands is, A, there's a lot of them. They're still competing with, for jobs with their parents, the baby boom generation. So it's a very wage deflationary environment. It's pretty miserable for most people. But what their parents left them kindly was an asset bubble to beat all asset bubbles. So they hitting 30 years old right now on average. and their parents are hitting 67 years old on average. And those millennials are faced with a record all-time high valuation in the stock market, a record all-time low interest rate on bonds, a record low interest rate on credit, and pretty much record high property prices. So given the same opportunity set as their parents, their probability is for negative returns over a significant period, or certainly low returns. And we can talk about the inflation environment or or the devaluation of money environment that they're also facing. And they've entered at 30 years old massively in debt, which was the complete opposite of their parents. So what do they look for here? Now, we know it's a great opportunity to be an entrepreneur. And I think this recession will provide even more opportunities to be an entrepreneur. So that's good. And there's capital available for that. But for the average person, Bitcoin and the whole digital asset space is the future for them. They too are going to get an opportunity the same or bigger than their parents got when they got to buy the S&P with a PE of seven back in 1982 when they were 30 years old. So they've got that opportunity set with crypto and with Bitcoin and the whole digital asset space. We haven't got to the tokenization space and all of the things coming and the sheer amount of alpha that's going to generate for investment portfolios, which has died a death. I mean, there is nothing left in financial markets now. Everyone's picking over the carcass of it. But here is an exciting opportunity for people who grew up much more digitally native. And by the time you get to Gen Z, I mean, they grew up on the online world. They socialize with their friends in games. They live a whole different world to us. So this is normal to them. So it really is an opportunity that people have desperately needed. Because if they were to continue with what, what's left of the system now, they're almost a doomed generation. And I don't believe that's the case. I think they're going to have a huge opportunity set in front of them. So Jill, I'd love to, to build on that a bit with your venture capital hat on. You know, one of the things that's really touted with DeFi and crypto is the capital market creation. The idea that you could actually have a lot of this cross-border capital creation without the intermediary 
fees and all of the expense in doing that and the complexity around finding opportunities. Do you think that that is realistic? Do you think we're going to see much more kind of micro capital market creation in a more global way? I hope so. It's one of the promises of crypto that first pulled me into the space and one of the things that I remain most excited about. But here I actually have to return to something I think that Raul will agree with. I don't see that happening unless there is a path for institutions to get involved. And I don't see a path for institutions to get involved unless we start to implement things like KYC and AML, much as that chagrins me and much as I think that that will end up undoing a, a lot of the uh, the openness that, that the system offers to people today. But I think that you know if you look at the evolution of capital markets, there's a reason why it's centered around large regulated institutions and firms. Even if you just look at the, the nature of liquidity and, and market making, it has to be centralized in, in these types of actors and entities and venues. And I don't see DeFi really taking off and reaching full escape velocity without that. And I think that in order to get there, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to accept some elements of regulation and, and get the institutions involved. But what trade-offs that brings remains to be seen. So listening to this over the, over the past hour, and particularly that, that point that you're making there, Jill, I think we're reminded really of, of how just profoundly complicated all this stuff is, right? Money, money reimagined is the you know is the title of this show and of the column that I write, and you know, I'm going to be keep writing this for years, I think, because the process of reimagining something that is so deeply embedded and has built up all this institutional weight over such a long period of time is a really really complicated process. But I don't think I could have really hoped for two people to give greater and and more you know uh, eloquent insights in, into all of that than the two of you so so jill carlson and uh raul powell thank you so much for joining us we'll have to get both of you back on at some point because this was a fascinating conversation thank you thoroughly enjoyed it yeah this is great thank you You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Jill Carlson, and Raoul Powell. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Mousseau, produced and announced with additional editing by Adam B. Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned for next week when we'll be back with Trisha Wong and Dele Atanda for a dive into the world of privacy, property, and agency. Do you have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.